I wonder how many of you have ever known someone uh, who was just a dirty, rotten scoundrel. But someone who, who seemed to have everything always to go his way. Maybe somebody you worked with or somebody you went to school with whose picture you would expect to find if you opened up the dictionary to the words arrogant or dishonest or selfish or dastardly. That would be her. And yet, as you went through school with her or as you went to work in the cubicle next to her day by day, it just seemed like everything always went right for this person. It seemed like they were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And if you can picture someone that you have known like that, then you probably have a good idea of how Jacob's neighbors must have thought of him. You'd have gone around Isaac's neighborhood and asked folks what they thought of his youngest son, Jacob. You might have gotten a a variety of different responses. Some of them might have said, he's a cheat. And other ones might have said, he's conniving, always tricking people. He's a thief. He's a lecher. All kinds of things would have been said about this man, Jacob, whose life we're going to begin to look at this morning. And yet, as bad as he was, everything seemed always to go Jacob's way. Which, as we're going to read, especially steamed his older brother Esau. The story of Jacob, as we find it in the coming weeks, is one long litany of self-centeredness, of deceit, and of success, surprisingly. And as we begin to read it this morning, in the back of our minds, we need to be asking the question, why? Why was such a rotten character so blessed? And as we begin to find the answer to that question this morning, we might just learn a little bit about God and we might just learn a little bit about ourselves as well. So I just want to invite you to begin learning the story of Isaac's son Jacob with me in Genesis 25, 19 through 34, which we read last week. We'll read those again this morning and then we're going to skip ahead to chapter 26 verse 34, and read along through most of chapter 27. But we'll begin Genesis 25:19. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger." When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterwards, his brother came forth with his, with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. 
Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now skip ahead with me to chapter 26, the last two verses of the chapter, beginning in verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son. And he said to him, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold now, I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare a savory dish for me, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Rebekah was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speaking to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me, that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me two choice young goats from there, that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall bring it to your father, that he may eat, so that he may bless you before his death. Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, then I will be as a deceiver in his sight, and I will bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son, And she put the skins of the young goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. She also gave the savory food and the bread which she had made to her son Jacob. Then he came to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Get up, please sit and eat my game that you may bless me. Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and felt him. And he felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, Bring it to me, and I will eat of my son's game, that I may bless you. And he brought it to him, and he ate. He also brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. 
Now it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Then he also made savory food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. Isaac, his father, said to him, who are you? And he said, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate it? All of it before you came and blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Then he said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not a blessing reserved For me, but Isaac replied to Esau, behold, I have made him your master and all his relatives I have given to him as servants and with grain and new wine I've sustained him. Now as for you, then what can I do, my son? Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. So Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling and away from the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live and by your brother and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. It's a terrible story, isn't it? Jacob is a terrible character in this story. And yet when we get to the end of the story, he is the one who is blessed. And we need to think about why that is. So I want us just to think about this story of Jacob and his older brother Esau under four headings this morning. So if you're taking notes, just four brief headings that I hope will help you follow along. Number one, we need to think about God's sovereignty in this situation. God's sovereignty. The root answer to the question of why Jacob was so wicked and yet received so much blessing is God's sovereignty. Jacob, despite all his glaring faults, was the man of God's own choosing. He was the man chosen by God to inherit the salvation promises that had previously been made to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. We read that in chapter 25, verse 23. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body, and one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So Jacob, just like his father Isaac before him, was chosen by God in place of his older brother to be the son of the covenant. That's the overarching answer to why Jacob was so blessed. And I just want you to notice in chapter 25 uh, the, the sovereign hand of God over all the circumstances that are happening with the birth of these two boys. First of all, verse 21, you'll notice that God was sovereign over the fact that they were ever born in the first place. Verse 21 tells us that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, but it was the Lord who gave the answer, wasn't it? The Lord was the one who decided that these two boys would be born. Verse 23, God was also sovereign over their extended futures, that meaning Jacob and Esau. He said the older will serve the younger. In other words, I have a plan for their entire lives. I don't just have a plan on which will be the older and which will be the younger, but as they they grow... The older will serve the younger. So he had their extended futures in his control. And he was also, verse 23, sovereign over their distant descendants. He said, 
Two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body and one people shall be stronger than the other. God is having a long-term view here, isn't he? In a long-term view, God was sovereign over Jacob and Esau and all of their distant relatives after them. And I want you to notice also that God was even in control of what order the two were born. It's the intent when he says the older will serve the younger that God's plan was uh, that one would come first and one would come second. It didn't happen by happenstance that Esau was first and Jacob was second. But I thought about it this week and I thought, well, God didn't have to do it that way, did he? If he wanted to bless Jacob, God could have just made Jacob be born first, right? The two boys were both in the womb. He could have just switched the order. Why did God want to bless Jacob and yet have Jacob be born second and Esau be born first? And the answer that I think is the right answer is that God did this just to prove that he was in control. It would have been a lot easier if Jacob would have been first. It would have been a lot easier for Isaac and Rebekah handing out the birthright and the blessing and so on. But God had Jacob born second just so that God could show them and show us that their lives and God's future blessings on his people weren't dependent on the circumstances of chance. And they weren't dependent on a human custom that said, oh, well, whoever's born first is the one who gets the blessing. God reversed the order on purpose simply to prove that blessing and honor and salvation are in his hands and not in those of human custom. So the point is that God was in absolute control of these two boys' lives from before they were ever born. Someone might say, uh, as as we think about how to apply this to ourselves, someone might say, well, I agree, God was in control of all the minutia in this case because whole nations were tied up in these two little boys. But God doesn't control all of human events so acutely. He only controls the important ones like the birth of Jacob and Esau. And I have two responses to that uh, way of thinking. First is that every human act, everything that you do today has a domino effect that will go a lot longer than you can see right now and a lot longer than you will survive. Every human act has a domino effect. And we don't know what the final effect of it will be. So who are we to say what events are really important enough for God to control very uh, minutely and what events are not? We don't know if something is happening in this room today that will affect whole nations. We don't know that. And so we can't just say, well, God doesn't control everything like that because we are not God. And we don't know what God has in store for the future. The second response when someone says, well, God doesn't really do this in every circumstance, God isn't in this much control over every life, is just to remind you of Matthew ten twenty nine, where Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. See, even the death date of sparrows is under the control of God, is watched over by wise and sovereign and loving Heavenly Father. And the the application of that is simple, I hope, and it's plain to you that God is designing and guiding your life according to wise and loving purposes, just the same as he was intimately involved in the birth of these two boys. Everything that happens to you happens for a purpose. Nothing is by accident. You are where you are this very moment of this very day because God designed your life to get you here for some purpose. And I hope you believe that. And I hope you take comfort in the fact that God is that wise and that sovereign over your life. So that this week when your computer crashes and you lose everything, when your health fails, when the perfect opportunity that seems so right falls through, when relationships are broken, 
you will be able to say God is in control. And I don't necessarily feel good about the way things have turned out right now, but God is in control and he will work even the minutia of my life for my good and for his glory. God is sovereign. And I hope you also realize in reading this story that the New Testament teaches us that God's sovereignty extends to the realm of our salvation as well. That's what Romans chapter 9 is all about. Romans chapter 9 is is answering the question, why do some people believe and other people don't believe? Particularly with the Jews. Why did so many Jews in the first century who had the gospel coming to them very readily, why did so many of them not believe? And here's Paul's answer to that in Romans 9, 11 through 16. He, he, He tells the story of Jacob and Esau. And he says this, Though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That's a quote from Malachi. What then shall we say? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he who says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now listen to what Paul is saying. Paul is saying in the same way that God chose Jacob for his blessings before he was ever born, God chooses everyone who ever becomes a son or a daughter of the covenant before they were ever born. And he says there in Romans 9 that the, the, the blessing and the choosing is irrespective of whether we've done anything good or bad. That's a good thing because none of us have done anything good enough to warrant God's salvation. And the, the choosing of God is irrespective of the man who wills or the man who runs. So you can try as hard as you want, but you can't change what God is going to do in the world. You can participate, you can go along with him, but you cannot butt heads with God and change his sovereign purposes any more than Esau could. That's what Paul is saying. So our salvation even depends upon a God who is sovereignly working before we were ever born to put us in the right family or to put us in the right community where someone would knock on our door and bring us the gospel and so on. And thank God that it's so. You could read later the uh, Baptist hymnal number 289. We don't sing this song, but uh, maybe we should. It says, my Lord, I did not choose you for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. You took the sins that stained me. You washed me, made me new. Of old you have ordained me that I might live in you. That's what's happening with Jacob. Before he was ever born, God was working, planning to bless him in spite of his wickedness. And that's how it is for any of us who ever believe. And what's the effect of believing that that what I'm telling you is true? The effect is humility. The effect is remembering we don't deserve to be saved any more than Jacob did. Our sins clearly demonstrate what Paul says in Romans 3.11, that there is none who seeks God. So you can just kind of scan back over your life and ask yourself, am I really that good of a person? No, of course I'm not. If I'm honest with myself, of course I'm not. I'm attached to the world. I like to do things my own way. I'm impressed with myself. And as attached to the world, as impressed with myself as I am, I can stand back and realize that if God hadn't have worked in my life outside of my own desires for selfishness, I would have never come to him. I had to have God working in my life before I was looking for him. I had to have God seeking me before I was seeking him. So 
as we think about Jacob, we need to remember, yes, Jacob is God's chosen vessel. But sometimes we think that we read these Old Testament stories about these men who are so blessed of God, and that must mean that the men were great men, and it's not so. Jacob was not a great man. Jacob was a dirty, rotten scoundrel. And so as we think about him for the next few weeks, we don't need to give him more credit than we deserve. And we don't need to give ourselves more credit than we deserve either. If we are saved, it is God's doing in spite of ourselves. So number one, God's sovereignty. Number two, let's think about man's sinfulness. That's on grand display in this story. And Jacob's not the only sinner in the story, is he? In fact, as we read the story, none of the four characters in this family portrait came out looking very beautiful. This is an ugly episode in their family history. Now, last week or two weeks ago, we saw some wonderful characteristics, particularly in Rebecca. But it's a reminder that one day we can be faithful and the next day we can be faithless, isn't it? Another reminder that we need God's grace. But let's just look at these four characters, each of them briefly, and see if we might see ourselves in each of them. First, we have Jacob, the con man. Jacob, the con man. His scheming began, as we saw back in chapter 25, verse 31, when he took advantage of his brother's foolishness and basically stole his brother's birthright out from under him. Now, this happens all the time, doesn't it, in our culture? There are lots of con men in our culture. Today they're called paycheck advance. Today they're called pawn shops. Today they are loan sharks. All these professions take advantage of the fact that there are some people like Esau who are so desperate that they are willing to give away their future to hawk everything that they own in order to get a big screen TV or a cell phone or a car. That's what Jacob was doing in this story. Perhaps it happens most often in our day through the lottery. Before the BP closed, I used to go to the BP and they would sell lottery tickets in there. And I would see people buying lottery tickets. And I realized that you cannot judge a book by its cover. But I would watch the people that buy lottery tickets. And I would say to myself, most of the people that I see buying lottery tickets don't look to me like the folks that have lots of money stashed away in stocks and bonds. They look like folks that are probably living paycheck to paycheck like some of you are. And yet the government is more than happy to take their money and use it on other things, take advantage of them and let them throw away their future by spending money that they really don't have. That's what Jacob was doing to Esau. Esau was foolish. Esau was desperate. And Jacob took full advantage of the fact for his own selfish ends. Some of us are like Jacob. Maybe you're not the one that's uh, running the pawn shop, but some of us are like Jacob. Some of us are willing to practice outright deceit in order to get what we want, aren't we? Just look at him in chapter 27 as we continued on in the story, pulling the wool over his dad's failing eyes in order to get what he wanted. You believe someone would do this to their father? Of course they would. Zoom in on him even closer in verses 18 through 25 and see the unbelievable lengths that he goes to to make his lies work. He puts skin on his hands, wears his brother's clothes. His dad asks him a second time, are you really Esau? And he lies to him the second time. And then zoom in really close on verse 20 and see Jacob even willing to take the name of the Lord God on his lips in order to make his lies sound feasible. It's an incredible story of deceit. 
It makes me wonder if there are any young people sitting in the room this morning who are right now trying to pull the wool over your parents' eyes about one thing or another, deceiving your parents. It makes me wonder if there are any of us involved in business dealings right now where we are being deceitful in order to get what we want. Maybe you're trying to sell a car and you're not completely honest about the collision history of the car. Maybe you're applying for a loan and you're fudging the numbers a little bit to make it look like you're more financially stable than you really are so you can get your loan. I wonder if there are any con men or con women sitting among us today. I wonder if, there are anybody that's, if there's anyone that's using the Lord's name, using your reputation as a Christian to take advantage of people. You know, where we came from in the South, it's a very good business to be a member of the, the big Baptist or the big Presbyterian church in the county seat southern town. Because if you're a member there, then you're respectable and you'll get more business. And that's just a way, another way of doing what Jacob does, which is take the name of the Lord on your lips just for your own benefit. That's what Jacob was doing, and it may be what some of us are doing. And it may seem okay, and it may seem right for the moment, but it's outright deceit. So there's Jacob, the con man. Then there's Esau. Call him Mr. Instant Gratification. If Esau had lived today, Esau would have been the guy at the BP putting his 401k into a stash of Powerball tickets. That was Esau. He wanted what he wanted. He wanted it right now, and he had no thoughts about the future. Instant gratification. And that's how many people live today, isn't it? Just look at chapter 25 again with Esau. Esau traded his entire family inheritance for a bowl of vegetable soup. What a fool. We may sit back and shake our heads at Esau, or we may sit back and shake our heads at people who throw their money away on the lottery. But there are probably some of us in this room today who are throwing away future blessings for the sake of a can of alphabets today. That's where some of us live. There are some of us who are doing it in the realm of finances. There's some of you in this room this morning that are spending and spending and spending with no thought about your earthly future and no thought about your rewards in heaven. Just buying things because it makes you feel good to buy things. That's Esau, instant gratification. Some of us are doing it in the realm of relationships. There are probably some of you in this room this morning that are on the verge of entering into some kind of relationship that you know is going to cause heartache and brokenness for a lifetime. But you're willing to venture that in order to have one night of pleasure. There are students in the room this morning who are throwing away years and years of opportunity and earning power because you'd rather fool around with your friends than study and do well. In school. So Esau wasn't the only fool who ever traded in his future for a bowl of thick and chunky. There are lots of us who are doing it today. And most of us can look at our lives and see times when we've done this. Most of us can say, I've got red stuff dribbling down my chin as well. And what's most frightening of all is that some of us are willing to do this instant gratification thing even when it comes to venturing our eternity on it. There are probably people in this room who know that they ought to give themselves to Jesus and who won't do it. And why won't they do it? Because they want some of that red stuff there. They want to enjoy sin for a little while longer. They want to sow their wild oats before they come to Christ. And let me just tell you, many people who live like that now never get out of that habit. 
And they stand before the great white seat of judgment, the great white throne of judgment someday, with soup dribbling down their chin, on their knees, pleading and begging like Esau for a blessing and being unable to find it because they wasted their opportunity when they were young. So there's Esau, Mr. Instant Gratification. Then there's Rebecca, wiser than God. Rebecca thought she was wiser than God. Now, we were reminded last week that children very often imitate their parents' good qualities and their parents' sins. And that's what we have happening in chapter 27. Yes, Jacob was a con man and a deceiver. But the whole plan to cook Esau's stew and wear Esau's clothes and imitate Esau's skin and steal Esau's blessing was Rebecca's plan. Jacob didn't think this up on his own. His mama thought it up for him. She was the chief deceiver here. And why did she dream up such a plot? Well, you have to remember that in chapter 5, the Lord had told her, Hey, Jacob is the child of the promise. The older will serve the younger. It's Jacob that's going to be the one who gets the blessing. So she was intent on making sure that her favorite boy got what was coming to him, even if she had to lie and steal in order to do it. And her problem wasn't simply to see. Her problem was failure to trust in God. God had promised that Jacob would be the son of the covenant. He promised that. But as Isaac got older and as it began to be time for him to bless his sons and give them the promises of the Lord through his prayers and his blessing, it didn't seem like things were going the way that God had said. It didn't seem like God was coming through on his promise. So Rebecca began to do God's thinking for him. Maybe she learned this from hearing the story of her mother-in-law, Sarah. You remember Sarah did the same thing, didn't she? God said, I'm going to give you a son, Sarah. God didn't give her a son right away. And so she gave her maid to her husband. Did God's thinking for him instead of just trusting God's promise. But at any rate, Rebecca finds herself doing the same thing as her mother-in-law. That is, fancying herself wiser than God. You ever find yourself thinking that way? God's not coming through. I've got to make something happen. I find myself thinking that way sometimes. Rushing off into decisions that seem right, but about which I haven't consulted the Lord for his blessing or his direction. I don't want to be like Rebecca was in this case. So let me share with you just what I'm trying to do differently here. I'm trying to be less like Rebecca and more like Eliezer, Abraham's servant that we read about in chapter 4. You remember Eliezer? Eliezer had a hard task. Go to a land that you've never been to and find a wife for my son Isaac. There are all sorts of questions in Eliezer's mind. How am I going to do this? But, like Rebecca, Eliezer had a promise. Rebecca had a promise, the older will serve the younger. Eliezer had a promise from the lips of Abraham, uh, Abraham, the Lord will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. That's chapter 24, verse 7. But unlike Rebecca, instead of rushing ahead and doing whatever seemed right in his own eyes, Eliezer didn't take matters into his own hands, but Eliezer got down on his knees and prayed. And he prayed not just generically, Lord, provide a wife for Isaac. He prayed very specifically, you'll remember. Lord, let the woman who comes out and offers me a drink and my camels a drink be the right woman. And God answered his request and Rebecca was there and she was the girl. That's how I want to be. I don't want to rush into decisions. I want to pray and I want to pray specifically. If I have no idea what to do, I want to pray 
God, do this so that I'll know to proceed. So I'll give you an example of that and then we'll move on to the fourth character. Uh, recently, uh, a friend of mine, a pastor at another church said, you know, we've put our services on the radio on the weekends. It's only $50. You can put your Sunday service on the radio. You should do it. I said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. It's WCVX. So I said, maybe I'll think about that. But I didn't have any idea if that's what God wanted us to do. So what did I do? Did I start calling the radio station? That's what I normally would have done. I would have called them up and said, well, tell me about this. And I asked a few people, and I would have just made a decision. But that day, for some reason, I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to pray, God, if you want us on WCVX, you have them call us. And they didn't call. And so we're not on the radio. It was that simple, and I'm not worried about it anymore. But more than that, I never jumped ahead of God, and I never had to experience the frustration of jumping ahead of God and then finding out that I really blew it in the end. I never had the frustration of trying to do God's thinking for him, at least in that scenario. So that's Rebecca, wiser than God. And finally, there's Isaac. Isaac, I called a bowl full of jelly. I don't know if Isaac was a chubby fellow or not, but as I began to study this story this week, I began imagining that he probably was a bit overweight. And the reason why is that a commentator on Genesis named Peter Williams points out how in chapter 25 and chapter 27, we learn that food played a large factor in Isaac's life and in his decision making. If you look at chapter 25, verse 28 with me, you find that Isaac loved Esau more than he loved Jacob. So he played favorites between his sons. But verse 28 also tells you why Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. Because Isaac liked to eat. And Esau was a good hunter who could provide what he liked. And then commenting on chapter 27, verse 4. Turn to chapter 27, verse 4, and listen to what this Peter Williams says about that verse and about Isaac. His love of food appears to dominate his thinking, even at the moment when he is engaged in the serious business of giving Esau the patriarchal blessing. And verse 4 says, Prepare a savory dish for me, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. In other words, there's something really important going on here. We have to eat before we can do it. That's the way Isaac thought. Food played a major part in Isaac's life and it affected his decision makings to the negative. In fact, if you read uh, chapter 27, I think it's uh, five times that it's mentioned that Isaac loved to eat. And he loved his one son over the other because of it. And he found himself in a position of, of trying to thwart God's plan for his family because he loved to eat and therefore he loved Esau more than he loved Jacob. And therefore, he was going to put Esau in front of Jacob, even though God had said it should be the other way around. Now, that strikes a chord with me because I like to eat. And I live in a culture that likes to eat. And as I approach the age of 30, I'm starting to see and feel the effects of what it's like to like to eat. And so are some of you. And I don't want food or anything else to become so important to me that it makes me turn my back on the Lord. And make foolish decisions like Isaac did. I don't want sports to do that either. That's the other big temptation for me. Food and sports are the two things that I could become most easily addicted to. I don't want to sit here on Sunday Sunday morning and be thinking about the Bengals game. 
I don't want to be sitting in the sermon wondering whether or not Ben Roethlisberger's comeback is going to be really great and the Bengals are going to go down today, which is what some of you may be thinking about while I'm speaking this morning. All of us are like Isaac with one thing or another. All of us have little idols in our lives, don't we? Maybe food for you. It may be sports for you. It may be lots of other things. But I don't want to be mastered by anything. I don't want, when I'm making decisions, to have to have a savory dish in order to do so. So, there are the four characters. Maybe you see yourself in one or the other of them. But the fact of the matter is that all of us should see ourselves at least a little bit in some of them. The fact of the matter is that the Bible is once again a mirror for our souls. And when the Bible holds itself up as a mirror, it's not always pretty what we see. What we see is that we are all sinners. And if God let us go, we would all make a hash out of our lives and out of eternity. And yet, we began by saying that God is sovereign over every detail of our lives, didn't we? We are sinners who are threatening to ruin our lives. And yet, God is sovereign over every detail of our lives. That must mean that God is sovereign even over letting us sin. So how do we put it together that we are sinners and yet God is sovereign over every act of our life? Therefore, God must even be sovereign over letting us sin. That's the third point. God's sovereignty over man's sinfulness. How is it that God can be completely in control and we can be still sinning? Well, let's just begin by saying that God is not the author of evil. Let me quote to you James 1, 13 through 14. Where he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So God does not make us do evil. God is not whispering in your ear, go out and have an affair. God is not whispering in your ear, Bengals game is coming on at 1 o'clock, and if he doesn't get done in time, you're going to miss the kickoff. If that's in your ear, that's you speaking to yourself, not God. God doesn't make us sin. However, God very willingly permits us to sin sometimes. And God controls the extent of our sin, and God directs the outcome of our sin for his own good purposes. The way I thought of it this week was thinking about martial arts. One of the things in martial arts is that you take someone's action, uh, their momentum, your opponent's momentum towards you, and you redirect it in order to put them on the map. You redirect someone else's momentum against you for your own purposes. That's one of the ways that you win in martial arts, and that's how God works with us. God can stop our evil momentum anytime he wants, and many times he does, thank God. But he sometimes, instead of stopping our evil momentum, uses it and redirects it for his own purposes. And the scripture is full of examples of that, isn't it? This story about Jacob and Esau is a classic case of God redirecting sinful purposes for his own good purposes. See, Jacob clearly had selfish, deceitful and wicked intentions toward his brother Esau. And so did his mother, Rebekah. And while not excusing what Rebekah and Jacob planned and did, we also have to admit that the Lord used the momentum of their scheming for his own purposes. God had promised in chapter 25, verse 23, that the older will serve the younger. And by the end of chapter 27, God had used and redirected Rebekah's scheming and Jacob's scheming to accomplish God's good 
purpose. And thank God that he did or we wouldn't have a savior for Jacob is the distant ancestor of Jesus. Another story that illustrates that God turns evil and uses it for good is the story of Jacob's son, Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph? Joseph's brother sold him into slavery in Egypt. They did a wicked thing. And yet God took him down to Egypt, blessed him in Egypt, and gave him a high standing and great authority in the courts of Pharaoh. So that when a famine came upon the land and Jacob's brothers, who had already sold him into slavery, didn't have any food to eat back in Canaan, where did they go? They went to Egypt. And when they got to Egypt, who did they meet in Egypt? Joseph, their brother, who now had the ability and the authority to provide the grain that they desperately needed. And Jacob's theological take on the whole situation was this in Genesis 50:20: You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result so that many or to preserve many people alive. So God is sovereign even over our sinfulness. He doesn't he doesn't cause it, but he allows it and redirects it for his own good purposes. And the most beautiful example of that took place at the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull where they crucified the son of God. The bloody murder of the Son of God was the most sinful act that was ever committed or ever could be committed. And yet, Peter says, Acts 2.23, that it happened according to the predetermined plan and purpose of God. It was evil, and yet God permitted it very intentionally. And Paul says, why did God permit it? So that he might save sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. So at the cross, the greatest act of human sinfulness was redirected and used by the Lord to show the greatest act of or to be the greatest act of God's mercy. God is just as sovereign over every sinful act that is ever perpetrated by you or against you. God can stop you and he often will, but he doesn't have to. And if he doesn't, he will redirect your sin and he will do good. You aren't doing good. He will do good even through your sin. So what should you take from this? There's two applications from God's sovereignty over our sinfulness. First, is just an encouragement to you not to be overly despairing about your past failures. I don't want to encourage you to, to, to not despair at all. You should feel rotten when you sin, because sin is ugly. And there's no excuse for us to sin. And sin has terrible earthly consequences. However... Remember that in Christ you may be forgiven for your sins. And remember that in Christ and in the end, God will work all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. So don't think the world ends when you fail. Go to the Lord, confess your sins, ask him to forgive you, ask him in spite of you to work good for his people and he will do it. The second application is simply this. Remember to take that same view when other people sin against you. Some people live with bitterness and frustration their whole life long because they fail to see that all things in Romans 8.28 refers even to the times when other people harm them. That's included in all things. So if someone harms you today, if you drive out of here and someone crashes into your car and totals your car, that's included in the all things of Romans 8.28. God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called to his purposes. Now, I don't pretend to have the answers on 
how God is going to do that in every circumstance in your life. I know, however, that whatever horrible, hurtful, scarring things have happened to you, and whatever horrible things are going to happen to you that you don't know about yet, God will, in the end, work them for your good if you are his child. God's word says it. And though we may not get to understand it fully until we get to heaven, it's true. And believing it will free you up to forgive. And it will free you up to move on and to live your life. It will free you up, even with a broken heart, to rejoice. So we simply have to be able to say to ourselves, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for my good. And then the fourth point, which is quite brief, is just this. This story is an illustration of God's grace. God's grace. Some of you, the whole time I've been speaking, may have had an objection forming in your mind to all that we're saying about God's sovereignty, uh, even his sovereignty over our sinfulness. You may be saying to yourself, this isn't fair. It's not fair that God would choose Jacob and not Esau. It's not fair that God would permit Jacob's sinfulness to turn into blessings. It's not fair that God would let someone sin against me. This isn't fair. And my response to you is you're absolutely right. Nothing I've been describing this morning is fair. What would be fair, what would have been fair in this story would have been for God to send Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau, all of them to hell for their sins against him. That would have been fair. What would be fair for us this morning is if this whole building crashed down and there were no survivors. That would be fair. For Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So if all have sinned and the wages of sin is death, then the only thing that God could do that would be fair would be to destroy us all. And he hasn't done that. So write it on a sign and put it somewhere. God is not fair. And maybe people will ask you what that means and you can tell them about the gospel. We may think that it's not fair that God chooses some and to save some and not others. We may think that it's not fair that God allows tragedy and heartache to happen in our lives. But we need to hear the counsel of the prophet Jeremiah. Why should any living mortal or any man complain in view of his sins. Lamentations 3.39. When we look at our sins, then our mouths are closed in complaining against the Lord. See, when we're thinking clearly, we really don't want God to treat us fairly. When our minds are set rightly on God's word and when we see ourselves as we ought, we don't want God to treat us as we deserve. Rather, we want God to treat us better than we deserve. We want God to offer us his grace. And you know what? He's done that, hasn't he? God has given us his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God has treated us better than we deserve. And I would just ask you if you've believed in the son of God this morning. You've entrusted yourself to the God whose grace is given completely unfairly. And for those of you that have, you realize that it is you and it is me who are the dirty, rotten scoundrels with silver spoons in our mouths. Father, 
thank you that though we deserve wrath, you grant us mercy. Though we deserve an eternity separated from your love and your grace, you have given us your Son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. No, God, you haven't treated us fairly. You've treated us mercifully. Let us always be mindful of what we deserve and what we haven't gotten by your grace. And let us, God, as we face the difficult issues of your sovereignty, of our sinfulness, of other sinfulness against us, let us be mindful that you work all things together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. Thank you for your Son who makes grace not only possible, but a reality. And we pray now in his name. Amen.